Welcome to College Land, the podcast featuring untold stories from higher education. I'm Nan Enstead in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Lisa Levenstein in Greensboro, North Carolina. We're here to explore life inside our nation's colleges and universities and to track some of the major changes that are happening. We do this by sharing stories about the people who work there. Our topic today is the massive pivot to online learning that happened at colleges and universities around the country since March, which has been truly an amazing shift. And we'll end with office hours in which we respond to a listener question about community colleges. Listeners, if you have something to say about online learning or about anything you hear on today's show, or if you have questions or ideas for other shows, we want to hear from you. Our email is collegelandpod at gmail.com. You can also reach us on Facebook and Twitter at CollegeLandPod. Now on to our show. When the pandemic hit in March, basically overnight, thousands of professors and instructors and millions of students were suddenly trying to teach and learn college-level subjects remotely. And many of us had never even Zoomed before. And nearly a year later, we are still at it. You know, Nan, I saw that First Lady, Dr. Jill Biden, is teaching her classes at Northern Virginia Community College on Zoom from the White House. You know, I thought, my gosh, that is so relatable. I know, right? Teaching and learning online has become such a widespread phenomenon. We in College Land are watching carefully to see what having Dr. Biden as First Lady will mean for the future of education, uh, including higher education. But for the present moment, What Zoom green screen do you think she uses to protect her privacy? For those who may not know, a Zoom green screen gives you a fake background so people can't see your dirty laundry, sometimes literally, at your house. A couple of my colleagues are really into an Oval Office green screen complete with presidential desk and flags. Dr. Jill Biden could give herself a small promotion. One of the best Zoom backgrounds I've seen is a photo from the motel from Schitt's Creek. But I guess that's not quite vice presidential. Anyway, listeners, for our show today, we looked for someone who could tell us about what it was like for the people on the front lines of making this big shift to online learning happen. You know, because the huge ramp up of online teaching also meant a massive ramp up of technology and teaching support staff. We found Rebecca Barrett-Fox, who was newly appointed in summer of 2020 as visiting coordinator of online learning at Heston College in Kansas. Heston is a small liberal arts college, and they went from zero online classes to 100% remote learning, and they hired Rebecca to make it happen. Rebecca had been a professor of sociology at Arkansas State University, and she had started teaching online on purpose several years ago. And by spring of 2020, she was already teaching all of her classes online. So when the pandemic hit, Rebecca realized she had some skills that other people really needed, and she wrote a blog post with practical advice that she titled, Please Do a Bad Job of Putting Your Courses Online. The post got one million hits within a week and garnered her a ton of praise because she emphasized caring for students as people rather than over-focusing on the technology. That's how Heston heard about her, and they snatched her up to teach their teachers. I talked to her about being on the front lines of this massive shift. Let's listen.
Rebecca Barrett-Fox, welcome to College Land. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You have been at the center of what is really a remarkable pivot that higher education has been doing in response to the pandemic of moving so many courses from in-person to online. And of course, we're, we know about this at the K through 12 level. It's been fraught and difficult and amazing um, in turn, but there's a lot that's been going on at the college level too, and you've been at the center of it. Your job is to teach teachers to teach online at, at Heston College, but I know that your PhD is in American Studies and you were recently an assistant professor of sociology at Arkansas State University. So can you take us through your story and how the pandemic fits into this and how you ended up teaching teachers as your primary job? Yeah, it's um, it's not where I thought I would be even a year ago. It's not what I saw myself doing. As you said, my, my PhD is in American Studies at, from the University of Kansas. And that's really where I was forged as a teacher. I, I got my teaching chops in first-year composition. Later, after I, I graduated with my PhD, I um, went on to teach in sociology, um, as you said, at Arkansas State University. And I wanted to bring that kind of thinking and experience I had in the composition classroom to teaching sociology. And part of that, I think, is for me, has been um, to be part of a mission to trans to be transformative, that that higher education shouldn't just tra transform individual lives. We talk a lot about that for students, but it should really change whole family trees. We should see communities being changed because we're helping students learn how to be social workers, learn how to be teachers, and most important, learn how to be citizens, right, and to be empowered. So I wanted to do that, and Arkansas State University, that was a great place for me to do that. That's a It's a mid-level regional comprehensive university that serves the Delta. And in the classroom there, first I taught first in person uh, with some online teaching. And then um, for my last uh, four years, fully online, uh, I really came to understand the pleasure of teaching in classrooms that were genuinely diverse places. And especially in our online degree program, the typical student was no longer a traditional you know, 18 to 22 year old. And those students really bring a different investment um, to the classroom because they know how education is going to change their lives. So you already were teaching 100% online before the pandemic. I was. That was your experience. Yeah. We had launched a fully online degree program um, maybe three years into my teaching time there. And um, I kept one foot in that and one foot in the traditional classroom. So I was able to compare them. And I think I made kind of a rookie mistakes of trying to just take my, my, take my in-person teaching and put it online, not really understanding that they're really different, <laughs> um, different platforms, you know, just diff not just yeah. different platforms, but di really different approaches to, to learning. Well, and I definitely want to ask you about that. So how did you end up at Heston? Well, last year, with the pandemic, I realized that I had I had learned so much about online teaching. Um, it felt like it felt like ingratitude if I didn't share it somewhere with people. And so I started writing at my my blog about that. It just you know practical things that I had learned, things that I had been given a lot of freedom to experiment with, and so I was grateful for that. And then the more I wrote, that the I think people found it useful, and I was I was grateful for that. 
writing about teaching was helpful for me. I was, I was fortunate already that when the pandemic hit, I was already teaching fully online. So my students didn't have a big shift to make, but my students oftentimes were teaching or were learning online because they have very demanding schedules. So at Arkansas State, a lot of them were already in healthcare. A lot of them work in prisons. A lot of them work in essential industries in, in food, um, like agriculture, meatpacking, things like that. And so the pandemic put a lot of pressure on them um, and in the jobs that they, they were doing. So things did change for them, but they didn't ha- what didn't change is that they had to become good at online learning. So I had some space to write about that. And then when the opportunity came at Heston College, which is a small private liberal arts school, they had no online classes. They had, were developing some online classes, but hadn't launched any online classes. And of course, they had to do all of this from scratch. And even though That's they're- a daunting job. Very much. I mean, even though they're a small school to do 100% from- From basically zero to from 100%. zero, Which yeah. meant that nobody there knew how to do it, right? And nobody had experience doing it. So faculty couldn't learn from each other. It's almost like the better you are at teaching in person, the bigger the jump it is to teach online, right? Yeah. Right. Because your standards are high, right? If you're, you know, like I'm going to be good at this whole brand new thing that I've never done. Like you say, I've never actually experienced and I've only seen some of my colleagues do. And now I'm going to go in a week. Right. (laughs) There went there went my spring break, to be honest. Um, In a week, do you know, I'm going to suddenly be like, great at this. So this brings me to your um, piece. And I think this is how I found out about your blog was um, you wrote a piece in March called do a terrible job, not a terrible job. What is it? Please do a bad job. (laughs) Please do a bad job of putting your courses online, which was it got that that piece really went viral. Can you talk a little bit about that piece and is that part of what captured the attention of of Heston? It it, it did. Is so I think that that helped. You know, I, I had a small audience for my blog before that. And it was one of those things. I was at a coffee shop, my favorite coffee shop. I wrote it, I put it online, and I checked back in a couple hours and you know, WordPress tells me your stats are booming or something like that. And I thought, well that doesn't happen very often. And over the next couple of days it really took off. And so I think it took about a week or so for it to get a million maybe five days for it to get a million views. The The thesis there of, of that piece is really, of course, that we're not going to do a terrible job at our jobs. And again, faculty put enough pressure on themselves to do excellent work that we, I don't think we have to worry about anybody slacking off. You don't get a PhD with that and become a professor with that kind of attitude or orientation of things. But in fact, what we need to be told is that we need to step back a little bit and not put so much, so many new demands on ourselves because the work of learning to be a good online teacher isn't something we can do in a week. And the temptation, I think, for a lot of people was to embrace all kinds of new technology and say, well, if I teach online, I must have to use all the newest technology, all the, you know, the bells and whistles and gadgets and, you know, all those ed tech tools, some of which are really cool, some of which are really fantastic and helpful. But for any tool that you adopt, you need to be able to evaluate its appropriateness for your class and your students. 
You need to look at its privacy policies, its accessibility, its affordability. And you can't do all of that for a bunch of different products at once while building an online class, while taking care of the immediate needs of our students for the kind of social support they need. And so I really wanted to warn faculty against delving too quickly and, uh, and making too many decisions at once about online teaching because, you know, they suddenly had a new toolbox that was like for some people really fun to play with. For some people it can be a little more intimidating and less fun, but they might feel really compelled to do it because from a student perspective, that's not effective. When usually when students are taking online classes, they're not taking online classes from all of their professors who have never done this before. <laughs> you know, so we're all novices. Most of us aren't novices in all areas of teaching at one time, right? Usually when you're, when you're learning something new and teaching, you're putting it in one class at a time. You're prepping one new class at a time. You're not doing all of this new stuff at once. And then that's hard enough for you. But imagine being a student who's now taking it from four or five or six professors who are all new at this. So to just slow down. You know, that that was the point of that blog post. And I think it resonated with people who needed to, maybe needed permission to do that. Well, and one thing that I really appreciated about the blog post too, was that for one, it, it helped me think about where are my students now? What kinds of capacities and technologies and interconnect connections do they have now that they've all gone home. I teach in Wisconsin. A lot of my students went to rural Wisconsin. Some of my students went back to China, right? If they were going to do something synchronous, they would have had to get up in the middle of the night. The, and you, you had one thing where you said, you know, remember that many of your students are going to be doing your class on their phones. And I was like, I gasped, you know, but it was true. I had a lot of students who were now try, not only doing my class, but all of their classes pretty much on their phones uh, because they really, they relied on the technology on campus. They relied on the computer labs. They relied on the checkout computers from the libraries and they had to go home overnight and they didn't have any of that stuff. And so at the same time that I'm getting all of this stuff from the university about, you know, here's how you do this technology. Here's how you do that technology. Try this, try this, try this, try this, try this. You know, my students weren't able to even be synchronous or do these things, many of them. So your your blog post really helped remind me to think about the students and kindness. Do you know, kindness is a theme that runs through your blog. And I think it's a uh, it's an important pedagogical principle, right? Doesn't have the kind of cachet that some of them were techno savvy pedagogical principles do, but that was really, really, um, it's really beautiful. So thank you for that. Yes. Thank, thank you for, for recognizing that. And you know, that's what students will remember. You know, what changes their lives is not you t teaching them how to new, use a new app. You know, when they are able to be vulnerable, then they can be open to learning and open to change. And when you're kind to them, that's when they can be vulnerable, you know, and many of them, we, you know, we think, we might think of our students as being tech savvy and really, you know, knowing how to do this kind of innately, but many of them, that's not the case. You know, they might spend a lot of time on a screen, but it's not using academic skills. 
um, you know, for, for many of them, if they have the internet at home, it's to support the use of a game system. If they're using their, their phone for classes, they might not be doing it at home because they don't have internet at home, so they can't be on the Wi-Fi. So now they're at the McDonald's parking lot or the parking lot of the library or, you know, a local high school has made a Wi-Fi accessible. And all of those um, are different kinds of burdens. You know, sitting in your car, you're doing your classwork on your phone. You know, it really, I, I hope it makes us ask, well, is the work that I'm requiring them to do online, is this really meaningful? You know, so so we should make um, really uh, discerning decisions about what we're asking of them. Right. Um, the, you know, I have a friend who has a, a daughter in, uh, who was in her first year at a small school last year and suddenly went home. And so my friend was seeing her daughter doing the online work that she was being asked to do. And she really said, now, why would I pay for this? This is not like the rapid pivot home did not go well for her daughter. It was a lot of, instead of, you know, being part of a campus community, she was sitting in front of a screen for lots of hours a day. And yeah, I guess I I um, wanted to ask you about sort of the difference between the spring and the fall and kind of how you see your job in helping people not just respond to an emergency, which was what was going on last spring, but really show up for our, our students who need to get through a significant portion of their academic program, especially those who are not doing an online thing as their choice throughout we are in a a series of traumatic um national emergencies and so i think we have to keep that at the front of our minds but of course the suffering is not equally distributed right so there are some communities that are affected more than others there are some communities that are better protected than others and i know you know that from from your own work this is stuff we care a lot about um, and sociology and history and um, these disciplines. So all of that is true, but we have what we have had now is more time, um, right? We've had more time to learn these skills. Um, I think it's an obligation of universities to prepare us to do this kind of teaching, not just assume that we're going to be, if you're good in person, you're going to be good online and you'll know how to do it. Uh, and I wish that more universities and colleges were using their resources to support faculty in developing these skills. That's something I, I know some universities have done a really good job with and, and some have not. Um, because this is not, you know, we're in spring now. This is not going away. We'll be in summer. It's not going away. I would think that by in next fall, we will still be facing a lot of these same challenges. That is a huge amount of time, right? We, we are now teaching some students who did half of their senior year under these circumstances. They might do their freshman and maybe their sophomore year under these circumstances. So I think we have an obligation to make it um, as a productive time as we can. And part of that just means not talking about this time period as, as a disaster or as less than or as them getting um, cheated or robbed. And, and I don't say that to say that there's not suffering because there is suffering or that 
that this is, of course, this is not what students expected, you know, when they were thinking about going away to college. And, and so I want to recognize that there's loss there and there's some grief there too, but it's also not a tragedy. There is tragedy happening, but the, tra- the learning online is not a tragedy, right? And so, and how do we make sure that students know that? I think one thing that learning online does, and and your friend's story kind of illustrates this, is it puts so much more pressure on the academics because um, some of the community things are not there, right? You're not living in a dorm with friends. You're not having experience of eating the cafeteria. You're not having um, some of the social experiences in, in the same way. Um, and so academics really becomes the reason that you're here, right? Because you're not you're no longer coming to, um, you know, for some of those social reasons. But that also doesn't mean that social reasons can't happen, right? Of course, there's community online, right? Do we have friends who are real friends who are online? Of course we do. Um, you and I know each other from, you know, most of our interaction is online. And you can really get to know people that way. And I think that's something that maybe we will learn from students because they are coming to classes already with the experience, many of them, of having real friendships that have been online. So if we could learn from that, that'd be great. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how the pandemic might have created a big experiment, right, about the future of online teaching, because now we have, you know, I've learned so much just from teaching one and a half semesters online and now gearing up for another one. I've learned so much about what makes a course good, what doesn't work. Mm, Sorry that happened, you know, through trial and error. Sorry, students. Um, But, you know, I have become convinced that you can do really engaged, student-centered education online. And those are my, those are my pedagogical values. Those are my teaching values. Um, but, but that it, it isn't automatic. And so, you know, students are discerning, you know, what they like and what they don't like. And it is, I don't know if you have an opinion on that, if you think that there's going to be sort of, you know, a, a um, verdict about these different models, but I feel like we have been doing an experiment. We, ha- yeah, I mean, it's a natural experiment. None of us would have invited it. None of us, you know, we were not happy about it, but I think, um, I think that students are figuring out um, what they like about online learning and what they don't like. And they'll let us know and they'll be able to use some of their power to to push our pedagogy more in the direction of of meeting their needs. So I I wanted to ask you, I really appreciated and found it to be true, your advice that students don't necessarily know everything about technology just because they're young. And I kind of do assume that, you know, Um, I do. And I and time and again, I, it was demonstrated to me that it was not true and that I needed to really, if I was going to do something, I needed to teach students how to do it, you know, otherwise there would be problems. And I was wondering about the flip side of that stereotype about your perspective training professors. Do you feel like older professors have been slower to take on new ideas about online teaching or more intimidated by it or more freaked out or more, you know, what's your impression? I was prepared for that, you know, so I was um, coming to Heston where, like I said, they had zero online classes and a very strong identity 
um, about community, about uh, just high touch advising and teaching. So a lot of time spent in office hours with students, faculty being really um, involved um, outside of academics um, in student life. And so I really thought, oh, they are not going to like this, you know, and um, the senior faculty in particular would feel resentful. Again, you know, they're good and they've been good for 30 years and I wouldn't want to be good at something for 30 years and then have to be a novice and maybe feel embarrassed about that or feel frustrated by it. And my, I'm really pleased to say that my experience has very much been the opposite of that. There have certainly been broadly across my experiences, some people who have looked at the situation and said, you know, I don't want to have to learn everything that it's going to be required to be successful at this. So I will, you know, I'm going to look at retirement or I'm going to look at sabbatical this year or take on administrative duties at a higher level. And I think that's fine. You know, if you look at this situation and say, it's just not the challenge that I want to meet, that's fine. Um, but there are also a lot of people who said, no, I really do. And and now when I think about it, of course, that makes sense because that's why they're good teachers in the first place is because they're good learners. And um, and they encourage their students to take risks and to be vulnerable and to ask questions. And, and they're not intimidated by not being an expert. And so there's you know humility in that. And I think that also, because this is not just about learning online, but it's it's doing this online while in a pandemic, many of them are using these tools outside of the class to stay connected to their own family members or friends. And so they're starting to see um, that the community that, that they've been promoting as faculty members, they're able to have maybe not, again, not the same thing, but, but have those needs met through online connection with people they love. And so they can see, okay, it it can be done. And so my experience at Heston, um, some of our senior faculty have been really leaders in doing this. And they're the ones actually most likely to get an email from saying, hey, I found this cool thing. I want to show you how to teach it, uh, to to use it. Could we have this tool? What do you think about trying this? And really being innovative. And I guess that if you're going to teach for 30 years, I hope, or or longer, I hope that that's everybody's attitude um, about whatever challenges we're facing, you know, at that stage of our career. Yeah, I love that. The very empowering thing for teachers about your website, I think, is that it keeps front and center those values of connecting with students, making online assignments that don't waste students' time, that don't, but that really ask them to do something meaningful and practical advice that's also really student-friendly, like make everything due at one time in the week. My students loved that so much because they had all of these online classes and there's all these discussion boards and there's all these, you know, chats and there's all these sections and all of these different things to do. And they knew with my class that Sunday night at 1159, which is the time that you use, (laughs) I use the same time, that's when all of their stuff for for our class was was due just like little things like that that's not technology do you know that's not like some fancy techno something um you know that requires them to purchase something or download something that's just thinking about what's this online context like and what's going to make them feel understood seen supported heard 
right? And that's what we try to do in the classroom as well. So they want to do their best. And, and in some ways, you know, the suggestion I offer, and, and some of them are really quite old fashioned. I mean, we talk about on, you know, discussion boards being online and, and like that's a high tech thing. No, people have always written to each other to communicate ideas. And that, that's, that's all, you know, discussion board is, is, and, and um, you ask, what is students doing well? I think if students feel like discussion board is a respectful place and the questions are meaningful, they love it because they get the chance to think about their ideas before they share them. They get the chance to write them down, edit them, review them. And that for students who might be quieter, who might struggle a little bit with language or with public speaking, you hear from these students in a can you can hear from them in a much deeper way than in a class, you know. Like a lot of academics, I think probably I was you know I was a two second thinker in class. Teacher asked a question, my hand was up, <laughs> and that was not always good for my peers because ten second thinkers, two hour thinkers, they have so much to contribute, and it really wasn't always good for me. You know, so I, I think even helping students who might be really quick to process something, helping them slow down and they can't dominate on a discussion board like they might dominate in class. So you can really get to rich discussions. And that's I think has for me has been a really lovely surprise. So again, if I had thought about it, I, you know, I would have seen it coming, but about online teaching. And I hope it's one of the things that we keep when this is over even if we don't do it on discussion boards, but that kind of awareness that we can slow conversations down and that we don't want to always just reward the student who's fast on their feet because that's not always, it's not always the best contribution that could be made in class or even the best one that they could make if they took a little bit more time. Yeah, great point. I, I wanted to ask, this has been a, a, a topic of much debate among uh, those of us at College Land about the whether when you're doing a synchronous class, whether to let students have their screens off or require them to keep their screens on. Do you have a position on this debate? Uh, I, I feel like this is like uh, such a hot, this is probably the hottest question and people have very strong feelings about it. I have some strong feelings about it. I'll say always you have to think about your students. And there are some differences across student population. At the same time, even if you think you were teaching students for whom this would not be a problem at all, you don't really know that and you don't really have a right to know that, right? So when you are looking in someone else's house, you don't have a right to ask them, well, am I going to find anything upsetting while I'm in there? And so even if you think, well, my students... You know, all of them have five seats by the internet. All of them have the right kind of computers. All of them have private spaces. All of them have quiet households. You don't really know that. And that, for me, is enough of a reason to really be cautious about mandating um, camera use. You know, I wouldn't want to ask any of my students, tell me your reason for not turning on your camera, and I'll judge if it's a good enough reason, because they shouldn't have to tell me those things. Well, that really wonderful piece of advice makes me want to ask if you have advice for students or parents who are observing this, trying to figure out, like my friend from 
my high school friend who has a daughter in college, what would you say to students and parents? You're, you're learning to be resilient. You're learning to be flexible. You are learning digital tools that you will use in the workplace. You know, there's a lot, again, a lot to grieve and a lot of things that we expect to be different and that aren't going to be different. And, um, you know, we want to be cognizant of that and, and be able to recognize that we're sad about those things. At the same time, you're going to come out of your educational experience with skill sets that are going to be needed. You know, so I've had friends who said, well, I wanted to do my student teaching or my, you know, my child was doing their student teaching and now they have to do it online. Great, because we're going to need teachers who are good at teaching online or, you know, students who want are doing internships in counseling and they have to do them through telemed. And again, that's not what they wanted when they were, you know, imagine themselves being a therapist or a counselor. It wasn't this way, but now they're going to have a skill that they would not even have had the opportunity to learn, but is going to be a needed skill for the world going forward. You know, when the pandemic ends, it's going to be needed and certainly it's needed right now. So there are some good things that we didn't want to learn. We didn't want to have to learn, but that you'll really be equipped for and you've done your learning at the what I think I'm hopeful about being, this is the, the hardest time for us. So if you can learn when it's so hard, you're going to just soar when it feels, when it feels easier. You know, when some of these big, hard things are over, you're going to be so strong at doing these things well. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much, Rebecca Barrett Fox for visiting College Land. Rebecca. Yeah. Thank, thank you for the chance to visit about these things. Hope to see you soon. You know, Lisa, Rebecca makes a great point in this interview that some students are really spending a major part of their college careers in online learning. And that's not a tragedy, though it's not what we planned for or wanted. And I think, you know, she really has inspired me to think about what we're learning from the pandemic, what students are learning, but also what teachers are learning. What's it been like for you, Lisa? I was really struck in this interview, Nan, when Rebecca Barrett Fox said that the question she gets asked most often is whether or not to require students to have their screens on when they're in a Zoom class or whether they're allowed to have their screens off so that from the teacher's perspective, it's just looking at a bunch of gray boxes with no actual humans in in them. I was struck by this because when I started teaching on Zoom, it didn't even occur to me that students wouldn't have their cameras on. I immediately required it, or I just kind of took that as it was going to be the norm of the classroom. And then when it came time to, you know, draw up a syllabus for my class in the fall, one of the requirements was that students would have their screens on. So I've now really loosened up on this after hearing from so many students about the challenges that they face with their cameras, things I hadn't thought of, like they don't like looking at themselves or having others watching them. Some feel it's really an invasion of privacy, and I can see that for classmates to be looking in on their homes. And so it's led me to be a little more flexible with these requirements and also to think in new ways about what it means to be in a Zoom environment. But Nan, what was it like for you at the beginning? Well, for me, I initially made it possible for people to leave their cameras off. I was teaching a large class in the spring and that class went asynchronous. That is, we 
pre-recorded everything and students could do that on their own time. So it wasn't until fall that I had to make a decision about whether to have cameras off or cameras on. And by that time, my goddaughter, goddess daughter, as we call her, um, Ellie, had gotten to me. She's a junior in high school. And she told me in no uncertain terms that I was not it was not cool to make students keep their cameras on. And so I was like, okay, I want to be the cool professor. And I didn't require it, but I found it so difficult in this class of 22 students to run class when I couldn't see people's faces. And really only a couple people chose to leave their camera on when I gave them the choice. So I really hated teaching. I love teaching usually, but I had a rough transition into the Zoom teaching. But over the course of the semester, I figured a bunch of things out. And so by the end of the semester, actually, I was loving the class. I love those students. I will always remember them, though. If I see them on campus, I will have no idea because I don't know what they look like. And this semester, I feel like I'm, I've kind of hit my stride. Now I have a huge class. Uh, it's all We have one day that's in person. And I feel that I've kind of learned how to do the, the Zoom interaction in a better way. It's really interesting to think about learning curves because some of the things I've actually come to appreciate about teaching on Zoom, I didn't even use when I started out. I remember that when I created the Zoom class for the seminar that I taught in the fall, I intentionally disabled the chat because I had this sense that though the chat will be really distracting and people will be like typing in the chat and not paying attention to the conversation. Well, after like the first class, the student said, you know, where's the chat? <laughs> and I sheepishly said that I had turned it off and they expressed their desire to have it on. So I enabled it. And then I realized that that is really what part of one of the magical well, more magical parts about teaching on Zoom is the ability to have a conversation and then also to be having a kind of supplemental discussion going on at the same time in the chat where people are like posting links and often even just kind of encouraging each other, like chiming in with great point or that's so interesting. It reminds me of whatever, like some other point that they made. So it really was not just a place to kind of put information, but also a place I found to create a kind of community that really started to happen in the chat. And then I was really struck by with what Rebecca Barrett Fox said about this idea that there's two-second learners, 10-second learners, and then two-hour learners. And it struck me that the chat is actually a great place for people who might not be the first to like jump in if you ask a question, but then have been kind of mulling it. And maybe the conversations moved on, but then when they kind of formulate their idea more comprehensively, they can write it in the chat and contribute in that way. And so I really have now become a huge fan of the chat. Me too. I love I love the chat because everybody can participate at once, whereas if everybody speaks at once in an in-person classroom, <laughs> it's, it's a mess. You know, Lisa, I kind of suspect that there are things that in my teaching that will not go back to pre-pandemic times. And some of that is about how I've gotten to know my students 
differently, not necessarily better, but differently. And some of that is about ways of thinking about collaborative learning. So I've really taken to heart Rebecca's you know, advice that we start thinking about this not as a tragedy, but as an opportunity. If you're interested in following up on this conversation and thinking more about kindness as pedagogy or about how to put a class online badly, we will link to some of Rebecca Barrett Fox's blog posts that have informed our own thinking. And now for a segment we call Office Hours, in which we answer listener questions about higher education. This question is from Eileen Queen. She writes, will college land include community colleges? It seems very university oriented. Yes, we do consider community colleges part of college land, Eileen Queen. Thank you for that question. We see community colleges, four-year colleges, and research universities as all playing distinct roles in our comprehensive system of higher education. Yeah, absolutely. And we hope that Dr. Jill Biden will bring national attention to just how important community colleges are. I think she calls them one of America's best-kept secrets. I mean, that's a really nice way to put it, but another way to say that is that they're unappreciated and underfunded. Yeah, and community colleges have been hit especially hard by the pandemic because their student population has been hit hard. Students who go to community colleges are more likely to be non-traditional age. They're more likely to be working class. They're more likely to be racial minorities. And they're more likely to be essential workers. And they're more likely to have children because they're non-traditional age students. So for all of these reasons, Students at community colleges are having to put aside their education in order to take care of their kids or in order to make up for a lost income in the family. And the data is coming in to confirm this. The National Student Clearinghouse Research Center issued a report on enrollments in fall of 2020, and they tracked significant declines in enrollments at post-secondary institutions of all kinds, but the worst were at community colleges. It was a 21% decrease. Really, really significant shift from the enrollments pre-pandemic. And if you think about this, going to community college for a lot of students is their pathway into jobs and their pathway into four-year universities. And so it's a really significant problem down the line. We need to figure out how to get those students, those 21%, which is over 200,000 students, we need to reach out to them and figure out how to help them get the kind of training that they need. The other problem of course, is that if you have a 21% drop in enrollments, you also have a tuition problem. And so community colleges, all, all colleges and universities are experiencing some budget problems because of the pandemic, but community colleges are really experiencing a significant crisis. And we're going to track that crisis on college land. In the meantime, listeners, if you have your own stories about community colleges or have questions for us of any kind, we want to hear from you. Our email is collegelandpod at gmail.com, or you can reach us on Facebook or Twitter at collegelandpod. 
And remember, one of the best ways for us to spread the word about College Land is through listener ratings. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review. And that's it for today from College Land. Thanks to our producer, the wonderful Rochelle Wilson, and to Wisconsin Humanities for their support. Thanks for visiting College Land. got a pandemic puppy. We built a chicken coop. If this does not stop, I'm going to end up being a farmer. Do you have sourdough? That's the other stereotypical. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm brewing some kombucha right now. So we're just, yeah, I'm back to the earth, I guess. I don't have the puppy or the backyard chickens, but we have the kombucha and the sourdough. So